now step into the incredible, amazing future as we go exploring tomorrow. This is Face Music, an ELO song by song podcast. I have a message from another time. comment about Xanadu bonus tracks episode. MJ Folds said, Hey, just listen to this. And did you really say Xanadu was better than Goonies? One of the all-time great films of all time. The most controversial opinion I have heard in a long time. I have a soft spot for Star Trek V, as I love the scene with Kirk, Spock, and the ever-wonderful bones around the campfire. I also enjoyed Generations. Went to the cinema to watch that. Admittedly, I was on my own, as no friend of mine was interested in it. Malcolm McDowell was great in that. Uh, Yeah, as for Goonies, if you do a Google search for Six Minute Critic, you'll find my podcast that I used to do, where I give at least six to eight minute reviews of movies, and Goonies was one of them, and you can hear me lay into that movie. I hated this movie. Hated, 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 hated this movie. For the record, I happen to love that movie. See, I'm the only one who doesn't. As for Star Trek V, actually, we watched this recently. My girlfriend has limited exposure to Star Trek, so... We've been making our way through all of it. Does Tala know about this girlfriend? Oh, that's right. We started when she was my girlfriend. Okay. So <laughs> now she's my wife, and we're going through it. Um, yeah, the, the camping scenes and where Kirk starts questioning God, those were good parts of Star Trek V. I mean, it is nice to see Kirk and Spock and Chekhov all do their thing. There is that. It's kind of for that. Yeah. But most of us watching Star Trek V started questioning God. Well, yes, yes. As for Generations, <laughs> I have a lot of issues with the canon, the continuity, Kirk's lame death. There's one part where I'm not sure who's the bigger a-hole. Kirk and Sulu were on the same ship for 30 years or something like that. And it was Kirk so self-absorbed that he never heard Sulu say anything about his daughter? Or was Sulu just such a jerk that he never talked about his daughter with anybody else? How does it come such a surprise to Kirk? What? Sulu has a daughter? Well, if you were Sulu, you would have good reasons of keeping your daughter away from Captain Kirk. (laughs) You know, you bring up an excellent point. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. All right, maybe we should move on now. His intense sexual hunger was apparent to anyone who bothered to notice. Comments about prologue. Corey Gomel says, Hey, Eric's, tell Troy to at least ask me next time about any ELO questions like he had on the prologue episode, where he does not know if ELO ever did it live. As a veteran of three time tour concerts, 
I could have helped him out. The stage show featured an R2-D2 type robot on stage as part of the act. The robot, although never known to have been explicitly named on stage, was affectionately called Fred by the band and crew. Its movement was radio controlled by roadies behind the stage. The show would start with a large digital clock reading down to the start of the show. When the clock hit zero, the digital readout changed to ELO, and Fred the Robot would roll out onto the darkened stage, and a tape of the time prologue would play as if Fred were speaking the robot voice. During this, the band would come onto stage in the dark. This would segue into Twilight, when the lights would come up and the audience would see the band performing the song live. Thank you, Corey, for the description. I would have liked to have seen that tour. I, I, I never got to go. And yeah, Fred, I, I knew about Fred. And I knew it was all part of the, the tour. Why I didn't clip that part out and make Troy look better is because after Christmas, and usually I got a lot of backed up podcasts to edit, so I'm throwing these things together as fast as I can to get caught up and ahead. So I guess maybe that's on me that Troy didn't look so good there. Should have paid attention. It's my fault. It's all my fault. I'm angrily shaking my fist at you, Eric Paul Johnson. Pam Van Lannen wrote, Yeah, that was a droid-full oversight that they didn't mention Fred, who still lives with Jeff. In fact, I believe all my love was written about Fred. I see what you did there with droidful. Ugh, lousy pun. Mark Herring says, My roommate owned a professional DJ outfit with Marshall amps and huge club-sized speakers, which we kept in the apartment between gigs. I cranked up Prologue on that system whenever I could. Loved it! I can't say the same for the upstairs neighbors, though. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I bet that did sound awesome. And one little fun fact about me is every time I get a new sound system, stereo, surround sound, or when I put everything back together after moving, the first thing I do to see how it sounds and make sure all the speakers are hooked up right and all that stuff is I listen to Prologue. That was actually the first thing I listened to when I got my surround sound, before I actually put the speakers up on the wall. I sat on the floor, plugged it in, I had the speakers around me, and then played Prologue to hear how it sounded. Man, I wish they'd do a 5.1 surround sound remix of time. That'd be awesome. So you do a little bit m- more than I do, which is just grab the first thing I can find on the stack to see if everything's working. <laughs> well, yeah, although a time is usually pretty easy for me to go and grab and test. It's, it's right there. Logan Anderson. I actually made a movie in high school. So low budget, no camera angles or editing ability. I called 8-Track to the Future, which is loosely inspired by this album. I won't go into details, but needless to say, I did have a certain theoretical physicist I was heavily interested in at the time as a character, who at the end of my movie, spoiler alert, travels forward to 2095. This entire album was an inspiration for me in 2004, when I was 14. This album was my first ELO album, and I played it ad infinitum as a teenager. Not the first song that got me hooked to ELO, mind. That song is on the next album. Tracer Anthony says, hmm... Did I miss something in this podcast, or did the guys never bother to mention who was actually narrating the prologue itself? We never bothered to mention it. I just thought maybe it's a narrator. But um, apparently Fred has a lot of fans, because I got a lot of comments about, How could you guys not mention Fred? Why did you diss Fred? And I guess the reason is because, and this is probably uh, human supremacy talking, I never really thought of Fred as anything more than a prop 
uh, for the time tour. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, he was used there, and he just went away. I never thought of Fred as something more than that. That's 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 bad on me. And until Corey Gomel mentioned it, I, of course, I didn't even know that Fred existed. <laughs> he does. He's sort of R2D-ish with arms and clamps at the end. Yeah, I saw a picture of it, and it's, yeah, it was a rather interesting design. Yeah. And far enough away not to get Jeff Lynn sued. Uh, yeah, apparently uh, he still has it. Apparently is still friends with it, which is more than I can say for Bev Bevan or any of the other ELO members who went on to play in Electric Light Orchestra Part 2, which he seems to have disowned. To quote Les Carter of Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine, <laughs> it's always better to have a machine as a bandmate because a machine you only have to punch once before they get everything right. I guess that's true. Words to live by, Cratchit. Trevor Raggett says, I remember when I watched pilot episode of Futurama where Fry gets frozen in suspended animation and wakes up hundreds of years in the future. I was sitting there looking at the TV thinking, oh blimey, they've made a cartoon of Yellow's Time album. You know, I never ever thought of that. You're kind of right. Falls out of the past into the distant future and misses his home. Sometimes. I had no idea the protagonist in time was Fry. What's his last name? Um, Fry. I forget. <laughs> I forget too. Uh, it might be Farnsworth since uh, the professor right. is a distant descendant, but. Then again, it's like a thousand generations between Fry and the professor, so. True. Don Fields. The era that created and supported Discovery had faded and moved on, and Xanadu, as a whole, didn't fare well. And all had moved on. The magic of ELO that was experienced since a new world record had taken its course, and all had moved on. We're now smack dabbed into the new decade of computers, Casio keyboards, Ronald Reagan, and more annoying making fun of that old guy. Hairspray abuse, shopping malls with bonus zombies, Howard the Duck movie, etc, etc. You'd think Jeff and the boys had moved on as well. Sort of. Running away from the Xanadu failure and onto the future. But it was done on their own terms. The strings were still there, but mixed further back while doing OD on those synthesizers meant that ELO went 80s turbo through Jeff's vision of rock pop music to wake things up. It certainly did for me. After a slight disappointment of Hold On Tight, Time Single Number 2 turned out to be ELO's most hyper-pop single ever, more than Mr. Blue Sky and Xanadu combined. This was the great start to this new decade for me. There was a lot going on here, and if you played Prologue right along with it, there was more than enough to roll over and stomp on any new wave track that would dare to go near it. Sure, there was a lot of 80s going on, but the extravagant shine of ELO of Yore was the ace up Jeff's sleeve. It was as if this track alone was a challenge to the rest of this decade. A gauntlet that was firmly planted on the opponent's head. A mic drop about the size of an asteroid that would wipe out the Earth. And the rest of the 80s just couldn't deal with it hands up and walked away with a headache. I'll stop right here before I get off the rails and compare this to another brilliant futuristic album, Donald Fagan's The Nightfly, though it was about a very different future. Rick Jack says, I once wrote a movie using the music of Twilight and some other ELO music as inspiration. I thought it was the best thing ever. Unfortunately, no one else did. (laughs) It was either real or a dream or something that was in between. Hopefully it wasn't Ecstasy in Blue too. Oh, although, being a sci-fi person that I am, I'd be interested in seeing the laughable sci-fi stuff going on around the 
laughable sex, I guess. And that means there's gonna be good times had tonight. Tracer Anthony, here's my Twilight story. Back in 1981, I was just really starting to get into ELO and wasn't as intimate with their discography at the time. My older brother worked at a mall and I asked him to stop by the record shop and pick me up the Vinyl 45 for Telephone Line. But at the time, I didn't know the exact title and only remembered the chorus line of I'm living in Twilight. So naturally, I thought the title was Twilight. Well, he picked me up the 45 of Twilight and I was like, what the heck is this? Needless to say, I soon learned the difference between the two songs, and to this day, I hold both in a high, very high esteem. Logan Anderson says, Tracer makes a point of referencing Telephone Line with its chorus hook of mentioning I'm living in Twilight. What I should like to propose is that this is a JLEU, a Jeff Lynn extended universe, if you will, where Twilight is where Jeff's character is trapped in the future, so he calls to his lost love in 1981 through the Telephone Line. I can't find her. This is an extended fiction I've created in my head. Sure, but if given the opportunity, time might be just one chapter in a bigger story of the JLEU. I'm not kidding. I like that. That people are creating their own ELO Lynn based alternate universes fan fiction sort of thing. Kinda like it that it takes it someplace else that Jeff Lynn didn't. And I do have a lot of created fictions in my head, which uh, sometimes I get confused with reality. So uh, I'd, be, I'd be a little bit careful with that. It's, uh, it happens to me, too. Yeah, especially when there's clothing involved, or lack of. Or that, yeah, right there, yeah. yeah. I thought Air gave you the creeps. Steven St. John, this is one of the best reviews you've done. It's not because you both like it, but because of your astute observations on the song, the way it's put together, and the way the music is layered. Fine job, gentlemen. Well, thank you. Well, thank you, because one of the criticisms we did get is because we don't go into every single little technical <laughs> part of the music, which I think, if you're not a musician, would probably put you right to sleep if you were listening to the podcast. So. Yes. Yeah, and also, again, I'm the Rube, Eric's the musicologist, so getting too deep into it is it's not really up to where my gourd is. Also, I think, yeah, it would get boring. Like the liner notes on some of those special edition albums. On this one, he used the CS-130 Tech Casio with the super setting over here that makes the, you just tweak the knob just to point negative one zero. And then if you slide the slide over there, you get that kind of... My eyes have already rolled back in my head, and I've, I've already tuned out, and I'm already picturing cartoon animals just bouncing around playing, uh, so, yeah. I'm picturing the scene from Airplane where the woman just <laughs> hangs herself next to That's, And also that, too. Also, I think our episodes got better with time. I think part of that helps that the songs on time gave us a lot to talk about. It wasn't just simply, Jeff's in love. Jeff broke up. Mm -hmm. This word rhymes with that word. Well, that was very clever of Jeff to put that word in with that music. There's a really big story going on on time. Besides, man, I miss my woman. So, whole kinds of things that can be talked about. Yours truly, 2095. Trevor Raggett says, Well, that went from synth pop to icky pretty quickly. <laughs> Funny, when I've listened to that song before, it's always been the, ah, he misses his girlfriend back in 1981 aspect my mind has focused on. Maybe I'm just too innocent. I love the, she's also a telephone line, too. That was so exotic and futuristic an idea back in 1981. Reminds me of the track Carphone from Roger McQuinn's 19K1 comeback album. 
about a spy blown up by an FBI hitman sitting in his car on his driveway while talking on his car phone. The phone built into his car. Remember them? Back in 1991, that was exotic and James Bondy too. How times change. I've always wondered where she's supposed to have the telephone. I, uh, you know, in my head, for some reason, I've always thought in the sternum. It just seems like a good place if you're going to hang up a telephone or put it on the, the hang-up slot, whatever. That's where it would be. For some reason, I've always thought the left outer thigh. <laughs> Plenty of room for a phone and a cord and everything else. And uh... That's true. I, you know, I suppose you can have these androids, these IBM units built to specifications that you want. So if you want the phone in the sternum, there it is. You want it in the leg, it's, it's over there. True. Yeah. Yeah, I was 13 when I heard this, and I just think, oh, lovey-dovey girlfriend. But, you know, as you get older, you realize that uh, passionate loves involves lots of sex. Um, so, yeah, I'm older, so my mind goes to the, the sex spot thing. And, and don't feel bad about being too innocent. It wasn't until my mid-twenties, when Oh What a Night, late December 63, became a hit again, that, uh, what's-his-face, the lead singer... Frankie Valley. That's him. I always want to say Rudy Valley. It's a completely different valley. <laughs> completely different era, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Frankie <laughs> Valley said, I, I don't understand the appeal of this song. I mean, people really seem to love it. It's about a one-night stand. I was just, what? what? I thought it was about a nice date that went really well, and there was a good night of bonding. Well, it did. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess it did. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking... They went to the ice cream shop, they went to a dance, they had a nice walk home. There was bonding, they talked, they got a little kiss at the end. And it was, oh, what a night, what a wonderful night of, of love. But, no, it turns out it's about banging one off one night and never seeing each other ever again. So, yeah, it's until about 27 when I was like, I, oh, my world's been shattered. Yeah, it wasn't shattered for me because I kind of always knew what the song was about. <laughs> And then in my 40s, I listened to the words of I Eat Cannibals, and now I wonder, is it really about oral sex and not about headhunters? Of course, then again, I guess headhunter could also be... We should move on now before... Yes, we yeah, should, definitely. Okay, yeah. Ken Buzzard, listening to 094 on my morning commute, and I stopped right after the intro. Listened to 093 to check. Hopped back into the 60 to 70 range, then forward again to 092, prologue, to confirm. This is Face the Music, an ELO song-by-song podcast. I don't know if anyone else noticed that you appropriately updated the introduction at the Xanadu time transition, but I did. And I wrote this guy back, and I said, that's great. And I really meant it. I didn't mean it. I hope it didn't come across as sounding like, oh, that's great. Glad you're paying attention, Junior. No, I really like, that's great. I'm glad somebody caught that. Because I didn't know if anybody else would. Because in 1981 and 83, they stopped calling themselves Electric Light Orchestra and started calling themselves ELO. So that was the change, and I'm glad somebody picked up on it. I wonder how many other people picked up on it that it was because of the name change and not because I got lazy and tired of saying, adding in the Electric Ite Orchestra in, in the intro. No, that Electric Ite Orchestra <laughs> would be uh, later in their career. I suppose that's right. Uh, I suppose... Yeah. After Jeff Lynne's done these three albums that sound the same, he's going to pick up a new sound, and he's going to go into the hip-hop rap thing, and yeah, it's going to be Electric Eyed Orchestra. Well, Chicago beat him to hip-hop, so... Ah, uh, please don't, Jeff, we're joking. <laughs> I mean, I'd like you to do a different sound, but don't, 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 just, just yes, don't. Please no. Yeah. <laughs> we, we don't go there. Corey Gomel, two things. Thing one, the friend zone. 
Not so much. It is no accident that this sex bot looks like Julie. She was made to look like her in an effort to make our hero less homesick. A design by the powers that be to keep our hero in 2095. Her is that what you want? Is her way of saying make it so. She obeys his every command. It's not that she refuses him. It's that even after giving him all he wants, he finds there is something missing. He misses the human interaction he had with Julie. The sex bot is rather cold, the lovemaking more mechanical. Thing number two, around 30 seconds in, when Jeff is saying, can you hear me? And the wake of all the synths, we get some very playful violin medley, violin or synth. It is pure magic and something that is truly missed in Alone and Out of Nowhere. Also, the extremely short summary of the outline of my version of the time story is so chopped up and changed up, I feel you need to add yourself as part of the writers. I'm not complaining. My version of the time story movie treatment is headed to the finest ELO writer of our time, Pam Van Allen. Okay, there's not a lot of competition for that title, but the outline is being sent to her to flesh out an entire book. Maybe someday, the movie I envisioned. Yeah, I forgot to mention that playful violin synth solo there in 2095. That was fun. Could definitely use more of that in his music lately, Jeff. Could. Well, there's this thing called variety he could use a lot more in his recent music. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and as for the short summaries, I told you I'm going to have to cut these things down to 30 or 45 seconds at the most. Because I run a podcast that has a hard time limit wall of no longer than 15 minutes. And that wall's been bust through lots of times during this podcast, so... Um, had to, uh, chop, chop, cut, cut, tilt, and condense to dense to bring things down to that time. And, yeah, there's a lot I had to leave out. So, when Pam Van Allen helps Corey out with his book, or if it gets turned into a movie, go see that, and you'll see, Hey, that wasn't in the serialization of the movie. And Stephen St. John says, I really enjoy the song. The kiss her interface line always amuses me. I never saw her as a sex bot, though. If she were one, she would never be as cold as ice whenever he gets too near. My 11-year-old son really likes this song, too. However, because of your persistent talk about sex bots, I'm unable to let him listen to this episode. Thanks. Um... Well, when I was 11, I knew what a sex bot was, so probably because I watched a lot of science fiction and stuff. And uh... Yeah, when I was 11, I knew how sex worked, and I knew how it happened, and this was back in the day when there was no internet. It's just something that you somehow found out. But, of course, when it comes to that kind of thing, that's everybody makes their decision on when everybody's going to learn it. So that's 100% parenting and up to them. So I'm not, I just want to make, make it clear I'm not criticizing anybody yeah, no, on, the, on this. So. I know. I think 11 years old, I was already, well, not with women or men <laughs> or animals or anybody else. So I, yeah, these things out. And I'm thinking to myself, when Madeline turns 11 in about... Three and a half years? Or even just if I had a boy who was 11, I'm just going to plug my brain and think, nope, 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 he's too young, he's too young, he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't, he's no idea, he's only 11. Even though, yeah, he knows he's 11. Come on. We had Three's Company in the late 70s, so we knew what was going on. Yeah, I'm one of those poor people where puberty hit early, so... (laughs) I'm somebody now! Mike Hudson. On the liner notes, it says, Girl's Voice on Yours Truly 2095 by Sandy. 
but I wonder if it is also Sandy that does all the other female vocals on the rest of the record. By the way, that synthesizer effect that you're talking about in this song and Mr. Roboto is called Sample and Hold, which, by the way, is the same thing that Richard did in the opening of the album version of Telephone Line, except the rate is a lot slower than on yours truly 2095 or Mr. Roboto. I was trying to think of any other female voices, and, and I guess there are some on Here is the News, which would probably be her. Are there any other female voices on Time? can't really think of any. Not that are as prominent as on 2095. Trevor Raggett says, I know I should think a bit less deeply about stuff like this, but you guys are definitely maligning the, this poor personal digital assistant who's just trying to get on with doing her job while fending off the unwelcome advances of this lovelorn sex pest. She's clearly not a sex bot, as when Jeff tries to touch, she makes it all too clear that she's not programmed to do that. After all, she's only programmed to be very nice, and politeness is a virtue in anyone's book. But she's certainly not encouraging Jeff, since she's as cold as ice whenever he gets too near. Just keeping everything on a professional footing. Shame on you both for maligning the good name of a young robot who's just trying to do her job. Jeff 2095, though, yep, he's a perv. (laughs) I loved that. I thought it was great. I guess you're right. My human supremacy. I wasn't even thinking about the bot. So, that's all on me. That's true, even though uh, maybe this young bot also needs to put herself through college and has a, and has a kid, has a little microcomputer and uh, <laughs> that she needs to take care of as a single bot. So, um, you'll see her down at the club later. These are things we don't think of here in the early 21st century, so we should get ready for bot rights, because that's coming. Believe it or don't. For Ticket to the Moon. And before Eric starts, put something here so people know what he's talking about. Uh, in the teaser, I wrote that the protagonist takes the shuttle Cramden on Ticket to the Moon, so that he goes to the moon. It's a, it's a reference to Ralph Cramden on the Honeymooners, because, well, you'll see. Doug Payton says, Shuttle Cramden indeed. In the movie in my head for time, I imagine our hero walking up to the ticket counter. And the lovely lady asks where he wants a ticket to. He notices her name tag and smilingly says, To the moon, Alice! Looking around, he realizes that nobody got the joke, which is how I feel <laughs> at work around anybody under the age of 40. Yeah, and you might I don't think you're going to have to wait until 2095. I'm sure there's already lots of people <laughs> yeah. who are already going to look at you like, I, I don't get it. I get it, and I think that scene would be funny. So I... I laughed when I read your little bit there. I thought that was pretty good. Ha ha ha! Ernie, ha ha! Logan Anderson. I've always believed it to the moon was more sad than expected. There is the line where the character says, I've paid the fare. What more can I say? There's just one way. Perhaps like Futurama, where the main character treats the moon like a big deal in his time, the protagonist does the same thing, but with a twist. It's where people go to live until they die, taking the just one way line a bit too literally. The Earth has nothing to offer him. He doesn't know if he'll ever make it back to good old 1981. Guess I'll go to the moon. Jill Chenault says, Can someone please tell me first why our protagonist felt compelled to buy this ticket to the moon in the first place? If he's going to start whining about whether or not he should go, perhaps it was an impulse purchase? But how did he pay for it? I suspect that Visa card in his wallet had long expired by 2095, and any cash he had on him would certainly be insufficient and antiquated. Where did he get the funds for this purchase? That has always bugged me. As much as I love the song, 
I can't help but obsess on these questions. Well, it is possible it's a society where uh, you don't have to pay for anything. Yeah, to alter something Picard said in First Contact, the movie, not the episode, the economics of the late 21st century are a bit different. So, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, re, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Jill has me stumped. We have to wait until 2095 to see what it's like. Do they just hand out tickets to the moon? Is it like buying a bus pass? Here's six bucks. You, you don't lose this transfer. Otherwise, you may be stuck on the moon or stuck on a space stop between the moon and the Earth. We can't say. We'll let you know in 2095. It's also possible that he might have just gone ahead and sold his clothes because 114-year-old clothes a lot of times will get you a good amount of money. Considering that they were in mint condition and I'm sure they could just do a little scanner bloop, 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 to make sure it's authentic and not a reproduction and... If he just yoinked out of 1981 into 2095 with whatever he's wearing or is in his pockets, that stuff's going to be worth a lot of money in, in 114 years. That's true, even if they are jammies. Yes, yeah, if they're still using money. Mike Hudson. In Ticket, I love the piano riff. Yes, it sounds a little like Moonlight Sonata, and also a little like the Beatles song Because, which Lennon says he was listening to Yoko play Moonlight Sonata on the piano, and he asked her to play it backwards, and it inspired him to write Because. Ticket is a very moody song. I love the way Jeff's vocals sound in it. His phrasing and inflection are perfect to match the lyrics on this one. I love all the cool keyboards and sound effects in the song. As an interesting side note, when this album first came out, shortly after I got a copy, I had a dream that I'd somehow met Jeff and he'd given me his phone number. I called Jeff to discuss this album with him and he told me that it was part of a quadrilogy and that there'd be three more in the series to follow. Well, as we all know, that never happened, as there were only two more albums, Secret Messages and Balance of Power. And yes, both of these albums were a lot more synthy and electronic than anything prior. I often wonder if, because Secret Messages was originally supposed to be a double LP, if maybe in my dream, that's what Jeff was talking about. Maybe he didn't mean three more releases, but three more records. The two records that would have been in Secret Messages, if it had originally been released as a double LP, and the record in Balance of Power. Or more likely than not, it was all a fabrication of my mind. It's either real or it's a dream. I'd say a dream, unfortunately. I have those dreams where I go to a record store and I find all this rare stuff and mm. stuff that's never been released in reality. Mm -hmm. Then I wake up and I don't have it. Yeah, I have the same thing with Jonathan Brammeyer radio shows from the early 80s. It's like, oh, I've just discovered this whole crate load of tapes. Or there's a radio station that's playing all the old shows. I gotta start recording. And then I wake up and, oh, crap. Or worse yet, I dream about these great songs that I've written. Oh, this is wonderful. This is a perfect. This is the song I've been wanting to do all my life. And then I wake up and I, I, I can't. All I can remember is there was a song. What the song was, I, it's, it's gone. That's why we need dream recorders. We need dream VCRs or dream DVRs now, I guess. Which would then end up being another source of porn. <laughs> Absolutely. Mark Jealous. I think your nostalgia comments are spot on. Oh, well, thank you, Mark. I think people can go back into the past because they know how things turned out. And so they have certainty and security in that way. As for the future, well, it can be anything you want it to be. The problem, of course, is the present and the immediate future. It's easy to regress into a golden glorious past that never actually existed. And of course, with virtual reality and the like, very much easier to create or recreate. 
a case maybe of the future is the past is the future. Marty McFly has a lot to answer for. Whoa, this is heavy. And yeah, as nostalgic as I've always been for the early 80s, I think it finally hit me in my 20s that the reason why I I think it's so great is because I know what's coming. The future is a perpetual onslaught of God knows what from a grab bag of mystery. Could be bad, could be good. Just don't know whether to brace for it or enjoy it. Whereas in the past, I can think, oh, that was nice because that led to that nice and that led to that nice. What's going to happen in two minutes from now? I don't know. Diabetic induced massive stroke? I don't know. I'm in my 50s and I haven't eaten well or done much exercising, so. Where uh, Marty McFly, well, luckily he doesn't have a whole lot to answer for because he didn't do the wrong thing, which was, huh, well, mom's hot. Going in Rome. Hey. <laughs> That's an angle of the movie I, I know that was hinted at, but now nah, I just don't want to. Yeah, it was actually it was actually in the original scripts. So oh, I'm glad it. I'm, I'm, I'm glad it uh, yeah, yeah, she. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad things got changed before it actually ever got filmed. Yeah, it's a, it's a good thing that Biff intervened and. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, a lesson in not changing history from Mister I'm My Own Grandpa. Let's get the hell out of here already. Are you on Facebook? <laughs> Okay, sounds like you are. Make the experience more enjoyable by joining the Facebook group Jeff Lynn's Blue World. Not only can you post anything even slightly tangentially related to ELO without some tin-plated nerd with delusions of godhood blocking, deleting, or removing you, but you can win sh- ELO calendars, ties, even tickets to Xanadu. Ah, oh, crap! Uh, not the movie, the play. Woo-hoo! Jeff Lynn's Blue World. I thank God that dream came true. And on that joyous note, let us get on with the show. Ornes Erickson says, What a week to ask the question, is this the way life's meant to be, with everything going on in the world? Anyway, time is my first ELO album, so it holds a special place in my heart, and this song is one of my favorites off the album. Never made the connection to Runaway, but now I'm sure it is no coincidence. And this is actually recording this when coronavirus is keeping everybody home, and things are going out crazy. By the time this posts, I think the end of may beginning of june who knows this might all be over might be a distant memory and everything's all sunshine and lollipops again so we'll see reality hits you hard bro james crow says great episode for a great song this is my second favorite song from the album my favorite is well you'll have to produce future episodes to find out also, I love the reference song for the Dwayne Eddy comparison when he discussed the guitar solo. What was that? Well, James? Oh, of course you know, James. You know where that song came from. See, James Crow is also a Patreon to our ELO podcast, and he's also a Patreon to my other podcast, America's Top 40s. And the basis for that podcast is that every week I count down the top 40s. It's basically me ripping off Casey Kasem, counting down the top 40 songs from the Hot 100, starting from the very first Hot 100 list, which was August 4th, 1958. So right now, I'm in 1959, and I've been running into a lot of Dwayne Eddy as I've been going through. And the song that I used as a snippet and The Way Life's Meant to Be is The Lonely One, which was currently in that top 40 when I was putting together The Way Life's Meant to Be. But really, just pick any Dwayne Eddy song, especially around that time in the 50s and 60s. And when you hear him play, you'll say, hey, that sounds just like the guitar solo from The Way Life's Meant to Be. Now everybody go listen to my other podcast too. Oh, and sign up for the Patreon for that, because unlike the ELO podcast, I don't have to share the money with anybody else. Greedy. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's partly why I started it. <laughs> Mike Hudson. I think Jeff took inspiration from Save the Last Dance for Me. Dolly Parton covered it about a year or so after Time came out, and at that particular time, I thought she wrote it, and I wondered if she took inspiration from the way life's meant to be. Found out a few years back that Last Dance was done first back in the 60s. Jeff even uses a lot of the same singing techniques as the original vocalist. So darling, save the last dance for me. Um, when I think about it, I was like, yeah, I can kind of see where parts of that would match up with the way life's meant to be. Yeah, it does. Yeah, especially the version he's probably thinking of and the most popular version I know of from the 60s was the Drifters. Yeah. And I can see where the chorus, it doesn't have the back and forth as much. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, the chorus does have a little bit of that. I wouldn't say it's a grab, though, because a lot of songs back at that particular time had the same exact rhythm and chorus and everything else as Save the Last Dance for me. Yeah, no, I wouldn't say he's ripping off or yoinking directly from the other song, but I can see where it's, uh, you know, I kind of like that. Let me work on that and weave that in my own way into the song. And um, I never noticed that before. Thank you, Mike. You're welcome! Doug Payton says, One of my favorite tracks on the album. I agree that it should have charted better, but I have a feeling that a single talking about wishing to be back in 1981 doesn't make sense out of the context of the story. Yeah, I heard the song about six months before I heard the album, and I thought, well, it's kind of funny that he wishes he was back in 1981, because it's 1981, so why is he? But then, when you hear the whole album, oh, got it. Tracer Anthony, this, among all ELO songs, is the most personal for me. By the time I was in my late teens, my father was already in his 50s, and his taste in modern music of the time was virtually non-existent. Except for this one ELO song called The Way Life's Meant to Be. For whatever reason, the melody of this song captured his attention and was the only song I can honestly ever remember him asking specifically for me to play for him. As far as ELO was concerned, This was, and always will be, my dad's song. That's really nice. Yeah. And I think I know why. Uh, Mike Hudson pointed out why. There's some hint of stuff from Motown. We pointed out some other stuff. There's obviously a big Phil Spector thing here. And you got Dwayne Eddy. There's a whole lot of 60s, late 50s references in here that come together in this song. So I can see why your 50-something-year-old dad, yeah, he would have been born in the 30s, a teenager in in his 20s and the 50s, so... Yeah, I can see why your 50-something-year-old dad would have a thing for the way life's meant to be. It definitely calls back to a lot of the music that he was listening to back when he was about your age at the time. I'm 50! Comments for another Heartbreaks. Mark Herring. There is something going on in this song with me since 1981, and I can't get it out of my head. There is a soy sauce on the market under the name Kikoman. Starting at 1 minute 35 into the song, the clickers change their beat, and I start hearing Kikoman. 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 All through it. It's never gone away. And I've tried. By the way, that'd be perfect music for a Kikoman commercial. Well, thank you, Mark, because now that's going to be in my head for the rest of my life whenever I hear another Heartbreaks. And Tracer Anthony says, Mmm, a good old-fashioned, unabashed instrumental meant to serve no other purpose than to burn off some time on an album. The good old days. (laughs) Mike Hudson. I've always loved this track. I don't think it sounds like a filler or out of place on the album. It's a perfect segue from side one to two. 
Or in the case of a CD or digital album, it's a good transition from the way life's meant to be to rain is falling. Unlike the two Eric's, I'm hearing Jeff's voice on this. It sounds like Jeff's breathy, deep voice. It could be that he used the old slowed down tape effect to make his voice sound deeper. He's using a heavy reverb on this vocal part. Perhaps that is also disguising his voice somewhat. When I first heard this track, I thought Jeff was using the Roland guitar synthesizer on the lead part. Either that, or a regular guitar being heavily processed using pitch shifting effects, delays, and other special effects. But I've heard in several instances where the track was created completely using keyboards for the instruments. Not sure if it's Jeff or Richard playing the lead part, but it's very nice. I still wonder if a guitar synthesizer was used. But I've never seen a credit on any ELO album for guitar synth, so I assume not. But this does make me wonder why Jeff never used a guitar synth on anything. Seems like he'd be a natural for this particular technology. Or maybe not. I tend to like a lot of atmospheric synth music, such as Brian Eno, Tangerine Dream, Vangelis, etc. That can be one reason I like this song a lot. And I can understand where some people might not warm up to this one. But I also thought The Whale was a great track as well. So, this one is my cup of tea too. Yeah, I listened to it last night. Last night being March 30th. And that I hear it, yeah, it's Jeff's voice. <laughs> when we did the episode, I was thinking in my head, but to actually hear it, it's Jeff's voice. And I'm also, I, I think what you're referring to, they, they, people call it a keytar, which I'm glad Jeff did not use, because... Um, no, that's different than a, than a guitar synthesizer. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, no, a keytar is kind of like the tea table keyboards, except made in guitar form, so yeah. it's portable around the stage. Yeah. So it, it's basically the same sounds and everything. It sounds like a synthesizer. Mm-hmm. A guitar synthesizer is actually a um, synthesizer meant to kind of replicate the sound of a guitar. Oh, okay. But you can do other effects on it and everything that you can't do on a regular guitar. It never, the, at least the older ones, never actually sounded really like a guitar. It sounded like a synthesizer that trying to be a guitar. Well, there you go. Now we're all smarter. Even though I would have loved to have seen Jeff with a guitar. <laughs> Andrew Openlander says, I love this one. One of my faves. It's spacey, moody, great tones. I play this for people and they are like, this is awesome. Who is this? Always a gateway to turn folks who wouldn't normally like ELO. You'd be amazed how many kids I meet who are big into 80s music, never heard time. But once they get a listen, they are hooked. And then you can sell them heroin. That's, well, you might want to just... Oh, well, we're not supposed to do that with kids anymore? You might want to just sell them more ELO albums and and Uh, music instead. That's That's, probably better. Yeah, that's, you know, 80s. Users are losers. Don't do drugs, so... Ah, yeah. Dare. (laughs) Yes. Logan Anderson. Another Heartbreaks has an odd significance for me. In 2009, Zack Snyder's Watchmen hit theaters. I hadn't read the graphic novel, but longed to before seeing the movie. As I read through the chapter with Dr. Manhattan, as he leaves Earth in self-exile on Mars, I scored the entire chapter in my head to Another Heartbreaks. It basically played on a loop through his memories. And then, when the glass fortress rises from the sands of the planet, the song ends. While the movie set the scene to Philip Glass's... I probably should have read this before I started talking. Koyaneskwatsky? Koyanes- oh, Koyaneskwatsky. There you go. That. Score... In my mind, ELO's song of loneliness better reflected Dr. Manhattan's isolation to me more. Exactly. This is me verbally nodding blankly, because I, I don't know anything at all about Watchmen. 
I actually agree that another heartbreaks might work towards that because I know exactly what scene you're talking about in there. There you go. People in the know know. I'm not in the know, so I don't know. At least about Watchmen. Yeah, I would read the comic first if you had time and then sit through the movie because then probably appreciate it more or you'll get really mad at the movie, one or the other. <laughs> okay. It's pretty stupid. Mark Jealous. This track for me is stylistically like something off of Out of the Blue. It's a beautiful heartbreak ballad. The synths and strings complement each other perfectly. I wonder if the lyrics point to the shock of the new and fear of the future. The noise in the city made the children run and the people scattered as the raindrops hit the ground. Even the children are fearful, and they are the future. On the other hand, the down on the corner with the sun once shone, perhaps referring to a golden past that never existed, but the people gathered round nevertheless. Great imagery, Jeff. The early 80s were a time of great change and reason to be fearful. But then, as now, I'm more optimistic than that, rightly or otherwise. Don Field says, Being a rain freak that gleefully falls asleep to rain videos on YouTube, which helps elevate the reality that I now live in Arizona, Rain is Falling fits the right tone for such matters with simple lyrics and mood. Lyrically, it is pretty simple, which is not a bad thing. And the real hint of depth or complication, depending how you view it, is the mention of the time transporter, and that's about it. There are little touches of audio layering, like the way they recorded and mixed the rain sounds as it was being draped over this track, and the vocoder pitched nicely soaring over the chorus. I know this was the third song released from the album, and it was too bad it never charted, especially in MOR slash AC charts, where wimp rock wimps like Air Supply poisoned the pollution on that end of the radio format spectrum. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Thanks, Jeff. You almost made listing, I think he means listening, to such stations bearable. Comments about From the End of the World. Mike Hudson. I've always thought the bass and the verse of this Echo and the Bunnymen song sounded like it borrowed heavily from The End of the World. And All in Your Mind came out several years after From the End of the World. Just read the comments below this EATB video. And someone posted they thought it sounded like this ELO song too. You say you're proud to be one of the people. Hands on the money and your feet on the ground. Oh, you're absolutely right. And Mark Jella says, a real band song, this one. You rightly praise Kelly's bass with at least a bit of Richard thrown in. I think Bev's drums are awesome. They are all part of the on-your-toes, fast-paced, high-energy blast the song is, and how they managed to pack so much into 3 minutes, 16 seconds. So round, so firm, so fully packed. Trevor Raggett, another great podcast about another great tune. First off, thanks for the kudos for us low-enders. was thinking about the It Hasn't Aged comment. I reckon that's because although the instruments and a lot of the approach are new wave, the actual chords, melodies, and structure of the song hark back to older, classic, popular music styles. Typical Jeff, I guess. In this case, rather than the Big O or Del Shannon, classic 60s cop, spy and detective soundtracks. Think Lalo Schifrin's Mission Impossible theme or the music from Bullet. The main riff is root, minor third, flattened fifth, a classic suspenseful spy sound. 
Then the synth stabs and figures, using extended intervals and diminished chords, are evocative of composers like John Barry, who did a lot of Bond music in the 60s. Listen again, but fill your mind with the images of these guys in trench coats and trilby hats slipping from the shadows and the music fits perfectly. So for all its superficial new waviness, it also incorporates strong elements of a familiar classic genre, which I reckon is what gives it the longevity you were referring to. Wow, wow, slow down, egghead. There you go, for the people who say we don't get deep into the intricacies of the song and the production and all that other stuff, Trevor Raggett just unloaded a, a buttload of intricate details that leave my mind blank, because minor third flattened fifth diminished. I just, I just song makes my toe go happy when I tap. Mike Morris says, love this. I kind of forgot this song existed, but Jeff always kept it interesting, except for another hard breaks. The lights go down. Alan Walker wrote, here's a funny accidental tidbit. Lynn often put backwards bits of music and singing throughout ELO's records. There certainly are backwards bits throughout the Time album. One backwards bit I thought I heard and wasn't intentional. When Jeff Lynn says, the lights go down at the beginning. It sounds like he's saying, back in the saddle, backwards, LOL. Jill Chenault says, oh Troy, it's not guitar. I got a lot of comments about that. Troy is not guitar. Even my wife, when she listened to the episode. It's guitar. That's right, guitar. Get it right, Troy, <laughs> guitar. MJ Folds. I never thought about it being reggae-ish. I definitely thought it was rock and roll inspired. Very much so. P.S. Can we have a trigger warning if you're going to mention the film Dirty Dancing? Yeah, I'd kind Only of... if we're going to make you watch it. Yeah. Which we would never do. Yeah. Although I, I'm in favor of that trigger warning, too. Ah! Mike Cube says, sounds Calypso, which, uh, yeah, wouldn't be that far off because Calypso is definitely one of the elements that was blended into the mixture that ended up being reggae. Even though Calypso is Trinidadian music, but... A lot of Caribbean music borrows and takes from other Mother Island traditions, too, so... Yeah, I can see it being Calypso-y. Jib Khan, a delicious hybrid of rockabilly, doo-wop, synth-pop, and faux reggae. Oh, so 80s, and oh, so wonderful. And still better than most of the stuff that UB40 did after the Rat in the Kitchen album. I, 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 I will have to just say, sure, because other than the hits, I haven't heard much UB40. Do you love Xanadu without fear of being shunned by humanity? We're here! We, we like Xanadu! Get used, used to it. it! Then roller skate to the Xanadu Preservation Society site at oddlystupid.wixsite.com slash Xanadu. It's an online warehouse of pictures, audio interviews, short essays, remixes, and a crate load of extras about one of the most maligned, yet somewhat enjoyable movies of the 80s. Make your Xanadu dreams come true at oddlystupid.wixsite.com slash Xanadu. Xanadu, 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 Xanadu. Ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce Miss Mary Jo West. And comments about here is the news. Mary Jo West says, you are so multi-talented. This was fun and thanks for asking. Well, thank you, Mary Jo West, and a big hefty thank you to you for people outside of Arizona or have never lived in Phoenix between the mid-70s to early 80s. Um, you probably don't know what a big, huge, freaking deal this is to me that Mary yeah. Jo West was on our podcast. She co-anchored the Channel 10 News from 1975, I think, to December 82. 
Then she went to New York. She worked for CBS. Then she came back to Arizona. And it's not just that she was an adorable and very sweet news anchor. From everything I've read, she was the first woman to anchor evening news in Phoenix. And when I moved to Phoenix in 76, there she was on the TV. And she's a broadcasting legend there in Arizona. So it was a really huge big deal for her to say, I just posted on Facebook, do I have any people who read the news who want to help me out with my podcast? And she said yes. And she was just as sweet and just as helpful as you would think. It wasn't like on the TV, she's a nice person, where in real life she can be a hard-bitten bitch. And believe me, with all the pushback she got back in the 70s, she'd have every right to be like that. I can imagine how conservative and how <laughs> old-school Bill Close was. Yes, that she had yes, to anchor who, with. <laughs> yes, and Bill Close came across as a crusty old news guy who you really did not want to get on his bad side. No. <laughs> I think even well into his 80s, he could still kick your ass without even trying. He was one of those tough bastard kind of guys. Bill and I had some, some tough times together. Here, he had been doing the news 30 years, and they stick this woman next to him. What does he do with me? And the first year was really tough, but I earned his respect and vice versa. Me and Mary talked on the phone. She was just a nice sweetheart. And in my head, I'm like, oh, I got to work with Mary Jo West. She was on the TV all the time when I was a kid and a teenager. And now she's doing stuff on my podcast. This is so freaking awesome. I know, I thought you were kidding when you said that you got her to do the <laughs> podcast. I'm going, really? <laughs> yes, You're really. You're full of it. <laughs> no, no, I meant it this time. Yeah. So, huge thanks to Mary Jo West. That's really great. I think, yes, yes. She's our first celebrity who have ever been on the podcast. Unfortunately, a lot of the other celebrities that we would love to have got on the podcast, well, they're not with us. <laughs> That's part of it. I'm really skittish. I mean, I'm Facebook friends with Bev Bevan, and he seems like a nice enough guy that if I asked, hey, you, would you like to do a little interview with our ELO podcast? And Mel Melvin Gale, also Facebook friends with, not that we're tight or anything, you know, it's, I'm Facebook friends in the same way that I'm Facebook friends with Obama. It's, you know, yeah. there's the account we're Facebook friends. I'm skittish about asking ELO members if they want to just even do an ID. This is Bev Bevan, and you're listening to Face the Music and Electric Light Orchestra podcast. But to do an interview or anything like that, I'm really skittish because I got a skirtin copyright laws here, and I'd rather keep the people who could. I I don't think we'd get sued. Mostly, we'd just get a takedown notice, and that'd be the end of everything. Yeah. So, so I'd at least like to uh, finish out the the whole series before we get told to stop it. Right. I can guarantee, though, if Wallace and or Ladmo were still around, we would have found some way to get him on, on oh, here. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, Pat McMahon's still alive. Yeah, but he's not doing too much at the moment. Pat is just a little bit over my dad's age, I think. And my dad is no longer with us, so. So we can't get him on the podcast either. <laughs> oh, that would have been fun. <laughs> Why are you listening to this crap? <laughs> <laughs> Because it makes us $11 a month. <laughs> that would have been an entire segment of, is this microphone working? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are you, a couple of nitwits? Think it's funny being old? Comments for 21st Century Man. Morton S. Erickson. A brilliant, brilliant, brilliant song. I wish the time LP had ended with this song, plus epilogue, and skipped Hold On Tight from the album. Well, I like Hold On Tight, even if it doesn't seem to fit musically with the rest of it, so... Yeah, I'm good with it. You gotta put Hold On Tight someplace at some point. Yeah, 
Mark Jellis says, I think this is at least in part about John Lennon or about missing John Lennon. The rather ghostly voice at the start singing A Penny in Your Pocket for me was a big pointer, and you have highlighted other possible Lennon links. I don't think Jeff would ever say it was, just like I think Horace Wimp is about Jeff's shyness. Jeff called the guy a loser. Whatever the reality, what a wonderful song about loneliness and having to face the world and get on with things. Big Wheels, another great example of this. G. Brewer, 21st Century Man's Ending segue that gets obliterated by Hold On Tight is the line, Though you walk in the fields of tomorrow, played backwards. At least that is what I heard when I owned a record player and could turn the record backwards. I did not hear this mentioned in the podcast. That's because it wasn't mentioned in the podcast. I guess that slipped by me. I guess I always just focused on the twilight being sung and completely missed the backwards 21st century man bit there. And Logan Anderson says, If the connection wasn't made, I'm actually Logan from Troy, Montana. So that stretch in logic was my contribution. I wrote that many years ago through my several sessions of listening to time over and over. It seemed logical to me initially about 14 years ago when I submitted that. But I'll confess, after listening to your rational rebuttal, I apologize to Jeff Lynn for perverting the message of his song. As for the song, I enjoy it very much. I think it's fantastic. I did not put two and two together. I didn't even think, oh, that's Logan Anderson. That's pretty cool, though, that we came across your thing from back then. And I hope, at least me, I hope we didn't come off as dismissive to your notion there. I actually kind of liked digging into the possible alternative meanings that could be there for the song so it was an interesting theory mr spock and we'll stop right there we are not going to go into comments for what else was left hold on tight epilogue julie when time stood still um queen of hearts uh, or gemini dream whatever because as you can see this is going to go on for a long time i i i'm just tired of these really long episodes so what we've done if you've been paying attention for the last two weeks is we will reply to the replies through Zoom, and we will post that video at our Facebook page. If you want to hear us reply to your replies, join our Facebook group, Face the Music, an Electric Light Orchestra song-by-song podcast, and it's usually every Tuesday. You get to see how dead sexy I am. And how dead I am. <laughs> at the, and then there's that, too. But I will to do this uh, reply for epilogue because it involves a music comparison. Richard Wisniewski. Hi, Eric's. Just catching a hint of similarity to Steppin' Out. Listen at about 27 seconds of epilogue and 1 minute 4 seconds at Steppin' Out. I'd never noticed that before. P.S. I hate coffee. Well, good. I like you, Richard, because I hate coffee, too. We're going to be buddies! We're going to be pals! We're going to wrestle our ass! Hey, everybody. This is Troy. Well, I've left you all in suspense long enough, and it's time for me to tell you whether or not I have come to the conclusion that the events transpiring on the album are real or if it's just a dream. And as I've said, I've gone back and forth on this throughout the years, but I have come to the conclusion that the events described on this album really happened to the protagonist. And there are two reasons why I think this. First of all, I don't think Jeff would record another concept album about a dream. I mean, after all, you really can't top El Dorado. 
or even equal El Dorado in that regard. And secondly, if the events were just a dream, I don't think the story would have the impact that it at least had on me if the protagonist wakes up back at home and all this hadn't really happened to him. Here you have a man who it seems like he's been taking his life for granted to a point and didn't really realize what he had until he lost it all. And I just think if that was really happening to him, it makes more of an impact than it would if it were a dream. I compare it to the first Planet of the Apes movie. Now think about this. If Colonel Taylor after seeing the Statue of Liberty half buried in the sand, had woke up on the spaceship or woke up back at home, would that movie have had the impact it did if it had all been just a dream? No, I don't think it would. I think the fact that when he finds that Statue of Liberty half buried in the sand and realizes that he has been on Earth all along, and he realizes he is trapped in a living nightmare and he can't get out. And he realizes that he too had been taking his life for granted, but there's nothing he can do about it now. I just think that movie packs a greater impact if it really happened to Colonel Taylor. And I think this album, Time, packs a greater impact if the events really happened to the protagonist. And again, you're free to disagree if you want. That's the beauty of great art. So I'll talk to you all next week, and in the meantime, please be safe. We're going to get through this. This has been a Thought from Troy. Back to ELO. So I have this memory, and you've told me this memory is wrong. Back in 92 or 93, I'm going to say 92, we were in my bedroom. Your girlfriend was with us. Nothing was going on as far as that was I was, was about going to on. say, uh, yeah. th- this is definitely going to be a false memory here. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, ELO came up, time came up, and I, that's, I'm sure I said something about how great time was. And I remember you saying, pretentious. No. No? No. Maybe it was Weird Al Yankovic we were talking about and you said pretentious. It might have been some other band because, no, I never found anything on time to be pretentious. Mm -hmm. I mean, I like it a lot more now listening to it than I did when I originally bought the album. Right. Because I was more than happy to buy the album because it had Here's the News and Hold On Tight. I mainly bought it for Here's the News, to tell you the truth. Right. And then I thought it was okay, but now listening to it again, I find it quite a bit better. In fact, I'll go into a little bit more detail coming up here, but... uh, no, I, I never thought this album was pretentious. I think I might have said one or two songs of theirs are, but there's very little about Electric Light Orchestra that is pretentious. Jeff Lynne is very rarely up his own posterior, so... <laughs> so yeah, that's true. As for me, uh, a friend went to California, came back with the album. This was summer 1982, and she said how great it was, and I was there in her bedroom. Again, nothing going on. We're friends. We knew each other since elementary school. And she put it on, listened to it, and I thought, holy crap, that is a great frickin' album. And I borrowed it from her a few times and listened to it a lot until I finally got my own copy about October 1982. And I listened to that thing a lot. In my head, it's not only just a great ELO album, this is, I'm going to say this is, for me, this is the best album ever. And it's not just because it has a lot of great songs on it. There are a lot of great albums that have great songs on it. 
I love Bare Naked Ladies' first album. Abbey Road, a lot of albums that have great songs on them that are just, it's just nonstop great songs. But the thing that pushes it over the top for me is that it's set in 2095, and every time I listen to it, I feel like I am in 2095. Jeff and ELO, the band, they do a great job of creating this world without visual special effects done with the genius of the musicians that he's got in his band that he's working with and his production talents and engineer and and everything else going on here to create a world that I can see just clearly in my head when I'm listening to it. And I think part of the reason why it's so great at doing that is because it fades in at the very beginning. It doesn't just start. And I think that's a good way for you to like transition out of the present time that you're in whenever you're listening to this album and like you're being moved into this late 21st century. For me, it's a great album. It's always been my favoriteest album ever. Ever. Best album ever. I would definitely not say best album ever. <laughs> yeah. Especially in a world where you got Dark Side of the Moon, Close to the Edge, Murmur, and even Back in Black. and <laughs> You've got, a, well, at least in my opinion, quite a bit of competition there. Yeah. I don't even think it's the best ELO album. I'm still sticking with El Dorado on that. That's a damn good one, too. Now, uh, I would put Time at the same level as a New World Record. Mm-hmm. My rating for it would be the same as Discovery as well, even though this is better than Discovery. I wouldn't push it that extra half star, but it is technically a better album than Discovery is. Mm-hmm. I would definitely say that you got El Dorado as their best album musically. You got New World Record and Discover as their best albums pop-wise, but you got Time as the best ELO album that non-ELO fans don't know about. <laughs> yeah. It keeps the concept concise. That he doesn't try to stretch this over two albums worth. All the music fits what's going on. And you are right, he does create a world. You can see kind of this Jetsons-like <laughs> future in your head as he's going through describing it. Mm-hmm. Describing what the protagonist sees. The only thing that drags it down is the protagonist is he does, whiny. He does kind of have a one-note story. I miss... Right. Well, maybe one and a half. I miss my baby. I miss 1981. Right. I wish there was a lot more to it than that because from what he's seeing, what's being described is this entire is this entire living world around him that he is trying to fit into, but he's so obsessed with just this one aspect of his life that you just want to reach into 2095 and go, BAP! (laughs) Right on the back of the head and go, Okay, we know. (laughs) We get it. (laughs) Now! (laughs) It's something you get over. I mean, I know it hurts, initially but it's something you get over and you start going you know my life is so much better (laughs) (laughs) well i you know and this came up in an episode i don't remember which one yeah if i was just shot into 2095 and everybody i knew was here yeah i would really miss madeline and tulla but i'm also going to be just agog at what i'm seeing i get to see what happens in the future and i can go and look back and see how we got to this future look through the history books and all that stuff. So I'm going to be in two minds, and I don't think that he touches on that other part of the mind. Mostly it's, I miss my baby, I miss my baby, which, yeah, I, I would also be saying that, but then there's that other part of it where it's like, holy crap, I am in the late 21st century. Look at all of this stuff. 
and I don't think he gets too much into the uh, holy crap I'm in the future right. part of the story with this guy. There's another perk about this album and it seems to have inspired a lot of creativity in people, at least ELO fans who love the album. We've read a lot of comments where people said they wrote a screenplay, or Corey did anyway with a friend, and they were shopping that around to get that made. People who've made their own little home movies, created their own stories. I, other than parodying the entire album when I was 14, also around that time, like January 84, I started writing a I don't know if I'd call it a novel. I was expecting to go 35 pages and keep it at that. Based on the album about somebody, happened to be a 14-year-old kid who was taken from 1981 out of this world where he's in high school and everything and into the 21st century. I never got past another heartbreaks as far as chapters go. I didn't plan to abandon it. It's just kind of like I drifted away from it. And what is it? 30 bunch of years later, I've never gotten back to it. I haven't even seen it. I think last time I saw it was 1986. And I remember thinking, well, this is actually better than a lot of the crap I was writing back in 1983. Whether that opinion would still hold up if I could find it again here in 2020, I, I don't know. But it seems to have brought out a lot of creativity in listeners that I haven't seen in any other ELO album other than ELO while I just Dr. Pam, Dav- Pam Davidson? No, that's the greatest American Davidson. hero. <laughs> Dr. Pam. Good, she's going to yell at you for once. Yeah. Dr. Pam Van Allen, writing her book about uh, that was inspired by El Dorado, and she's got one coming out that's inspired by Secret Messages. As far as ELO goes, she's got one about the Wilburys, too. So it's not only a, a great album of great songs that puts you in that mind of the world that he's trying to set up, but it's brought out uh, creativity in people more than I've seen any other ELO album. Time is the ninth studio album by the Electric Light Orchestra. It was recorded in early 1981 at Musicland Studios in Munich, Germany, and Polar Studios in Stockholm, Sweden, and was released on July the 2nd, 1981. The album itself managed to reach the top on the UK album charts, as well as the Swedish album charts, and also in West Germany. It fell just short of the number one position in Austria and the Netherlands, as well as in Norway. And it got up to the number three position in Australia, number seven in Canada, and number nine on the Cashbox charts in the U.S. However, on the U.S. Billboard 200, which is the one that most people look at, it only got up to number 16. Reached number 19 on the Italian Albums charts, got up to number 10 in New Zealand, and number 28 in France, and number 36 in Japan. It is one of the first concept albums to deal specifically with time travel. Corey Gomel, I can only hope Face the Music will continue on forever. To boldly go to all music that Jeff Lynne has touched, written, played on, and produced, and maybe even inspired. A never-ending amount of music to review. I wish you and Eric Part 2 an infinite amount of continued success. That's, that's high praise. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know. I really like the idea of this podcast coming to an end. And... Then I can only have just one podcast to do instead of trying to produce two every week. Um, oh, you'll you'll find some other podcast to do just to do it. 
No, I will definitely find something else to take up my time, even though I'll say, nah, you probably shouldn't do it. And I'll make the same mistake that I made with my America's Top 40s podcast, thinking, this'll be easy. I just slap this thing together in an hour and I'm done. And then it turns (laughs) out there's actually, I'm going to have to write a script. I'm going to have to do a spreadsheet with chart positions so I can give chart facts. And then it says, well, I'm, I'm in it now. I can't get out of it. It's actually gaining popularity, so now people are depending on me and... All right, I gotta keep doing this. So, get back to us in about two years when we hit the last song. Maybe I'll change my mind, but I'm really looking forward to just having one podcast to produce every week. And I don't mean to come across as if, oh God, I can't wait to just get this thing done and over with. I like things that are a complete set, like having a band's complete discography or a TV show's entire series, every season from the entire series, having a complete set there. It's it's right there, it's on my shelf, and oh look, all of them are right there, and it's great. So I like having a complete set of ELO podcasts. This covers the entire ELO catalog, and there it is, it's up on on the shelf with all the other stuff, and it's complete, and I like it like that. So I like doing the podcast, and when it's all done, I'll be like, cool, look at that right up there. I did a complete set of ELO podcasts. Maybe Eric can carry on with someone else. Well, and then, of course, I'll end up carrying on with probably a band I really like and no ELO person will want to listen along with any so. <laughs> <laughs> Face the Music, a residence podcast. Exactly. Yeah. Which, Facing the Music, at that point, takes on a completely different uh, <laughs> connotation. I would think so with what little residence I've heard. Also, uh, my mind could be changed about extending the life of the podcast. If I'm bringing in like $1,000 a month through Patreon or donations, sure, I'd be more than happy to keep that money train rolling on through. Yeah, we could find a way of milking it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll go into Electric Light Orchestra Part 2 and orchestra and the solo career of Mick Kaminsky and just... Whatever, as long as that money's coming in, yeah, um, $1,000 a month, I'll absolutely keep this thing going. But right now, splitting the Patreon donations four ways, I'm making about 7 or $8 a month, which is what Eric and Karen and Lisa are also pulling in. Oh, I don't pay Troy. Wow, I'm a bastard. Or even George. You're who does not the, paying Troy. I don't, or even George, who does those fantastic Great Line segments. Oh, and now Don Fields, he's going to be on the extended episodes. Mm-hmm. Our, see, this is why I don't split it. We'll each be getting like a dollar a month. <laughs> so see, we've got a crew now. We do. We've got, we've, so we've got, we, an need... enti- we've got an entire crew with us now. and an, Or uh, as the mm-hmm. kids like to say, a posse. Yeah, so we need more Patreon. Come on. Yeah, you don't want to leave these people out in the cold. We'd like to give them money. So mm-hmm. give us money and we'll give them money. And we'll just go on until one or both of us dies. We'll just f- dig up whatever ELO we can find even when we run out of ELO. And we're far enough away from each other that neither of us are going to be the suspect. So. <laughs> <laughs> Unless I fly a drone all the way to Troy, Michigan. Illinois. Tr- uh, Illinois, yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm going to end up in the wrong state anyways. <laughs> Jeez, Winston, can't you kill anybody right? <sighs> <sighs> That's why that career never blossomed. Yeah, you're like a poor marksman. You keep missing the target. <laughs> okay. There's a Star Trek reference for John Champion. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. So we're going into secret messages starting next week, and there's going to be a couple of things that I should explain here so it doesn't eat up a lot of time on the actual episodes. 
First of all, there's going to be a segment called The Secret Messages of Secret Messages. And back sometime in mid-84, me and a friend kind of hatched this conspiracy theory that what if the secret message of Secret Messages is that it's the last ELO album? In a way, it kind of was. We hoped it wasn't, especially I hoped it wasn't. We knew our conspiracy was bunk, but it was more like a fun game to play as if you want to believe in something, you will find things in the thing to believe in to support your cracked out crackpot conspiracy. Like reverse messages said he was, oh, too early. Yeah, just, yeah, don't do it. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, after that, I just started listening to the album Closelier. Closelier? Looking into the lyrics. You're already off on the grammar track here, so. Yeah. So looking into, looking at the lyrics, listening to it more, and in every song you can find a reference to either a previous ELO album or a previous ELO song, and that's where it's like, ah, see, right there, that's his goodbye message to everybody. He brings up out of the blue and 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 twilight, and here he says the word afterglow. You know, he said afterglow in another song too. So with each song, there's going to be a segment where our conspiracy theorist will point out the secret messages that are hidden in the secret songs that show that Secret Messages was going to be the final ELO album. This conspiracy theorist isn't a big, huge guy who yells and sweats a lot and needs to really pay his child support, is it? We don't know. He's got a muffled voice. He's always seen in silhouette, so and his voice is ah, distorted, okay. so we can't so really... I don't know who he's going to be or, or what. He's got the message, and he's trying to get it out to people if they would just listen. But it's not old AJ. <laughs> no, not that I know of. Could be, though, I have okay. to say. Also, and this is only available at Patreon, and you got to pay a special fee for this, we're doing expanded episodes. There will be more talk, more discussion between me and Winsenson. Don Fields has his own segment where he comments on the songs. Whenever there's a cover version of a song, me and Eric will talk about it and play a little sample of it. And then, really, anything else I can think to pad out the episodes to make it an expanded episode. I know on one episode we go on for about 20 minutes about a song that I did that was inspired by Time After Time and the ELO sound of the early 80s. There's all kinds of bonus extra stuff in the expanded episodes, but you gotta pay $8 a month. So that's you get $2 per expanded episode. So, and only at Patreon. You're not gonna hear it anyplace else. Throw some cash our way at patreon.com slash ELOPod. For $1 an episode, you can hear episodes a week before they post to the world. At the $2 per episode level, you get expanded episodes heard only on Patreon. Reviews from Don Fields, the Eric's Cover ELO cover songs. Or skip all that and just hand it over directly through PayPal using the email address ELOFTMpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to these Patreon subscribers. Andrew Clarkson, Bill, David M. Stow, Don O, James Crow, Jill Chenault, Michael Mullen, Silver Wings, Stacy Reed, the ESO Network, and thank you to Mike Morris for unloading a dump truck of sound drops. And thank you to Stephen St. John for the From the End of the World music bed that he made himself. And now, outtakes.
prologue. <sighs> Belching the prologue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll be I'll play some of that. Huh, I'm sure everybody's going to appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um I think that's all I got. Maybe later on I'll okay. remember, remember what I was going to say, right? And About all I've got for this one. Twilight! There's a little bit of a pinball machine there. I think that's pretty neat, too. And I think you've got some comm chat in there, too. Yeah, the pinball machine part is actually supposed to be part of yours truly 2095. See, I, in my it, head, yes? Yeah, I was, re- I was reading that the pinball part was that was, that was a mistake that they made when they did the uh, CD. Mm-hmm. That whoever mastered the CD included that at the end of uh, Twilight, when it's actually supposed to be the very beginning of 2095. Right. See, in my head, and I first heard this album in 1982, um, it just, yours truly started when that uh, just soul synthesizer part kicks in. I always considered the pinball machine part of Twilight what people would consider to be new wave right i I was thinking like flying lizards or soft cell that's pretty cold and empty and just right a synthesizer not much else exactly exactly and yeah and this sounds complete completely different i don't think there's anything really on time that sounds like that tell you the truth i don't think it got released as a single yours truly 2095 probably would have been the better one because it could have Written on the it, well, nah, I'm getting ahead of myself because <laughs> Mr. Roboto was a few few years later, but uh, yeah, Mr. Roboto was. was a hit, and uh, yours truly is better lyrics and everything. Well, I'll get into that next time, but yeah, uh, but there, it actually probably could have been a bigger hit than Twilight. Yeah, there are other songs on this album, that, but Twilight, not a great song. I, I really love the part where it goes into is um. Is this real or is a dreamer? That part, anyway, which I will splice in. But I think um, you know when you got Holland Oates, when you've got <laughs> when you've got the Royal Philharmonic. You heard truly twenty ninety five. processing of a punch card. Yeah. Oh, and I totally made up. Even though, even though typically, if you listen to digital, um, with all the sound of the sound of computer programming on a on a tape. Which yes, that that used to be done, and yes, you could actually listen to it. It sounds more like a bunch of, well, it sounds more like, uh, more like more like uh, an artist like Mersbo or something like that. But it does actually kind of sound like some weird experimental music a lot of times. Yes, I we tried that once because back in the day when you had a Vic sixty four, you put in the cassette tape that the cassette thing was hooked up to your computer, and you push play. And then 25 minutes later, the game was loaded and you could play. And me and my friend, we wondered, well, what if you put it through a regular cassette deck? What would it sound like? Of and, course. And we found out, and we were sorry that we found out. Right. Yeah, if you've, if you've uh, watched Black Mirror Bandersnatch, there's a ver- uh, one of the hidden endings at the end is you find out he's actually listening to the computer sounds off of uh, an old computer cassette tape. Yeah. And uh, you can kind of hear what it sound, what it sounded like if you uh, work through your, through the movie towards that particular ending. So, uh, oh, by the way, I totally made up "Intimate Body Machine." I just did. Uh, this sounds about right. Take it to the moon. A lot of this is going to wind up in the outtakes. I can tell already. 
Hi, I'm Eric Wensensen. And I'm Eric Paul Johnson. And Jeff Lynn gives us a ticket to the moon. And hey, if he's going to be handing out tickets like this, well, I'm going to grab one and head there with him, especially since he's singing about how nostalgic he is for the 1980s, in the 1980s, even though the character, I believe, is still there, stuck in 2095. I was there in 1981, and we didn't have tickets to the moon in 1981. Closest ticket to the moon you got was probably the Easy Pass at Disneyland, if they still had that rocket ride to the moon ride. Or if you really annoyed Ralph Cramden. <laughs> See, the guy had quite a powerful swing in, in that fist, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The lunar surface, I guess he's going to jump around, play a little bit of lunar volleyball, which uh, that's not going to be as exciting as beach volleyball, I would believe, but... Yeah. He's going to have a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, uh, I worked the volleyball games when I was in at NAU, the women's volleyball games, and yeah, I'm going to guess that to play volleyball on the moon, you're not going to be wearing such revealing stuff. And I suppose hitting the volleyball would be right. like when Herman Munster would hit a ball. It would just pew, off it go. You'd never see it again. Exactly. Yeah. The song itself, though, his character ended up at this point. Yeah. 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 Madeline born in 2011. So there's a possibility that Madeline could be alive. She's never in, seen 2095. She yeah. could be alive in 2095. <laughs> She'll be in her 80s. But, you know, with science and if she takes care of herself, yeah, there's probably a good chance. Oh, my God. I am living with somebody who will live to see 2095. 2095 to me used to seem like a million years away and I will be long dead by then but I'm actually all right I gotta pull myself out because we're doing a podcast here and I can't dwell on jeez okay um yeah ticket to the moon that it is about a guy he seems to be in two uh states of mind at once where it's like it's the future okay it's kind of neat that I get to go to the moon and stuff but Oh my God, do I miss her and how how nice things were in the early 80s. That piano... Yeah. It does not sound like... It, I mean, the flip side of it, here is the news. We'll get to that, of course, soon. Mm-hmm. That does. Yeah, I was surprised that Ticket to the Moon was the A-side of that single. I know it's a double A-side, but they put Ticket to the Moon as being the first released one on there, and it just seems out of place. Even by 1982, I was 13, and I was already nostalgic for 1981. So when he, so part of this, when he said, uh, "Oh, that's another song." Wait a minute, <laughs> that's the way life's meant to be. If we're going to begin, if we're going to get into an exact year, completely alien to him. And no matter how welcoming everybody is, it's still going to feel like it's a completely different place. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's like. Uh, Marty McFly trying to open up a can of Pepsi, and he's twisting and twisting and twisting. And then, you know, George comes up and puts it in the bottle opener. Here you go. It's just, if you're not in that time period, it's uh, there's going to be a lot of confusion about how things work, past or present. True. Another heart breaks. Yeah, I could see when time stands still replacing this, because that's actually a more memorable instrumental. Well, I still it, don't understand what... Well, it wasn't... What was that? It wasn't an instrumental um, when time stood still. I, I don't know if you've heard it, though. I thought, that was an, I thought that was an instrumental. 
After All was an instrumental that was on the B side of After Rock All. Rise After King. All is the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. After All. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, that's that's the one that's on the back of Rock and Roll is King, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, that one was. I don't know if that one is recorded at this point though, but it is. It is the better instrumental track and more a, a bit more memorable and everything. Right, which we'll get to in I don't know, I suppose a few more weeks at this point. Um, yeah, I I think when time stood still, the lights go down. Yes, yeah, because Zeppelin Dire Maker. That's more of an example of more of uh, a tip more typical um, old fashioned reggae. You're right. Just, um, just didn't have horns in it because it was Zeppelin. Yeah, well, but, yeah. Um, but that—that—that's—that's more—that's more. You got you got the beat in there, but they—they uh, they play up the beat a lot. It's not just that same program beat. That's why I say is dance hall, is especially digital dance hall is a lot different because it's the same as when you listen to '80s stuff and you got that stupid <laughs> fake drum in there. Yeah. Doing the dance beat. It's it's the same. It's the same thing as when you take a take a musical style. You boil it down to just the dance part, and that's it. And then it becomes boring. Here's the news. Well, they've kind of stayed around. I think it's mainly because local news. People people like their local newscasters and everything, and uh, they're willing to still stick around for that, not as much the uh, main national newscasters, because as soon as you want national news, huh, you just flip on CNN or... Uh, or um Oh okay, the other ones are propaganda networks for the most part. But <laughs> CNN's pretty close to it, but CNN, yeah, is about this is about the closest you're get, you're you're gonna get to actual news around in the United States sometimes. <laughs> or Yes, I did call Fox a propaganda network and I know you're sitting there surprised. <laughs> yeah. Or they're old people like me who are just used to watching the evening news on a network uh, station at 5.30. So, and really, they have other things to do besides being assaulted by news 24-7. Um, but I think we both agree. Awesome song. One of the most awesome songs that Electric Light Orchestra ever did, actually. And, <laughs> oh, yes. uh, and uh, I'll even let my little quibble go with the meteor shower thing, which... Hack sci-fi writers always try and put in meteors. Well, there's, there's also there's also rocket lag. So I'll, I'll give him the rocket okay. lag because I'm pretty sure that uh, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure my sleep schedule if I'm going from uh, Earth to Mars is going to be a little bit screwed up. Yeah, I guess I can see that being out. Of so lag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but. Um, but yeah, uh, but when it comes to meteor showers, uh, meteor showers do nothing except make <laughs> bright lights in the sky. <laughs> if you live in a place where you can see the, the sky, if the sky isn't drowned out exactly. by street lights. 21st century man. Mm-hmm. And it's George Harrison all those years ago. We're talking about the good times with John. And he's not singing about, ah, oh, I get to write this happy, perky, good time song about my friend being murdered. So yeah, yeah. it's I just not, <laughs> no. No. Hold on tight. My dream being, well, my dream being that I probably get a better copy of uh, time before I get down to recording the whole thing for myself because I think mine is a little bit crackly, but mm-hmm. yeah, with a with a certain song. But uh, 
in this particular case, I I like Hold On Tight more than I like Rock and Roll as King, mm-hmm. to tell you the truth. Yeah. Because, and, uh, yeah, it's really, really, uh, one of their few attempts to really start appealing to the MTV generation at the time. Well, that would have been us. But <laughs> yes, it would have been. But, uh, <laughs> Which is kind of funny, because yeah. the video came out maybe a month or two before MTV started. so Yeah, but Night Flight was already on, and mm. uh, and uh, they, and the Friday Night Videos thing. There was already some videos, some video stations and after-hour stuff right. well, where they were already starting to... Uh, where, where a lot of record companies were already starting to um, get in on it and uh, right. start to push... A little bit more than just the usual promotional films from the 70s. Right. Well, Friday Night Video started in summer 83. But, yeah, videos were getting played on, you know, cable. Uh, I think HBO had Video Jukebox. So, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm thinking, Video Jukebox, yeah. not, night, so, not I mean, Friday Night Videos. It, it, I don't know if this is hindsight or just because I was 12 and pretty much kind of figured, yeah, this is the way things are going. There's going to be videos and video for every song, and some of them are going to be great, some of them are going to be lame. So... Videos is the way of the future in the 80s anyway. Which, uh, this was not a lame one, so I'm no. surprised that when MTV did pop up, it wasn't on more. Even though it could have been on more, we, my parents were poor, so yeah, yeah, we did. it took a while before we got anything. Yeah, so. MTV wasn't part of basic cable, at least in my world, until about 1986. So, yeah. yeah. Take advantage of it. Instead of being like uh, the guy who did uh, Playground in Your Mind, and doing shows in Vegas, living off one hit that you had in 1974. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, he 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 got an incredibly lucrative gig just being uh, one of the hottest producers in music. Yeah, yeah. As the yellow decide, as he decided to start putting yellow to bed. Well, and also, uh, other than I, why do you like them? Freedom man, America. Don't don't be like one of them. So, yeah. Yeah, it isn't like when Levi's tried. I uh, wanted to use the Dead Kennedys <laughs> holiday in Cambodia, <laughs> in a show, and uh, I mean in a commercial, and uh, yeah, Jello Biafra rightfully said no yeah. effing way, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, because well, the song has the N word in it for one thing, and <laughs> yeah, and it, and it's about sending rich kids over to Cambodia to be tortured to death. Which is because they t- because they're all because because of their slumming culture and <laughs> and what are people? I'm still trying to get the grip on why Levi's mm-hmm. would have wanted that. Hold on tight. I can see that for a coffee achiever yeah. thing being. Hey, if you drink coffee and you stay awake, you you might achieve something mm-hmm. rather than falling asleep on the job. Yeah. That that yeah, you can kind of see a connection yeah. there. Well, what do people usually wear in slums? Ratty old Levi jeans. There's your connection. Not anymore. <laughs> Ratty old Levi jeans are more expensive than <laughs> the new ones. So. Really? Then I'm sitting on a... Yeah, there's a collector's market for ratty old Levi jeans as long as they're 80s and back. Then I got a freaking gold mine in my storage tubs. Oh, man. This might solve Possibly. my problem with getting a house and getting my Legoland out of storage. Exactly. <laughs> So we've gone on way, way longer. Yeah, I f- <laughs> we've gone on longer than the song on this one. Yeah, so. I, I figured this was going to be a long episode. So, yeah. yeah. But yes, everybody out there, hold on tight to your dreams. Mm-hmm.
We're still going to do epilogue as a separate one, aren't we? When time stood still. And this is when time stood still, otherwise known as your first day back to work after the coronavirus goes away. Yeah, I, I, I would kind of like to know that because everybody's gotten all this time off, uh, paid time off, and corona-related unemployment insurance, and um, I don't get time off or hazard pay. It's same old, same old with me, and I'm kind of cranky. It's like, it's not fair. It's like, it's like summer school. Everybody gets to go out and play and have fun for summer. I'm stuck doing the stuff I got that I just, I just want my, I want my Corona vacation. Yep. Well, I got hazard pay, <laughs> and I also had a scheduled vacation, but I'm working from home when I get back, so, so, uh. I, I'm not too too bad, especially since I get to sit back and listen to one of the most forgotten ELO songs, yeah. and I really have no idea why this wasn't on the album. Joey, don't live here. Yeah, Los Angeles is about the same way, mm. and Phoenix has always kind of been uh, kind kind of been like uh, you know you know where you got the popular kid who's walking around the high school and you got this little hanger on. Yeah. See, so th that's that's Los Angeles is the popular kid with Phoenix back there going, "Hey, can I play too?" Yeah. No, that's that's <laughs> that's, that's, that's accurately yeah. right. Face the Music, an Electric Light Orchestra song by song podcast, is a production of Radio Trolla Entertainment, assorted deli meets amalgamated. You can contact us by voicemail at 623-850-3375 or email us at eloftmpodcast at gmail.com. Keep up to date on the show by joining our Facebook group and spread the word by sharing the link or giving us a quick rating on iTunes. You can financially support the podcast at patreon.com slash ELO pod. Next week, episode 107, Secret Messages. That's all we need. That's all we need. No, you know, you can stop talking now. Oh. Yeah.